Adele Eileen Smith has made a career out of retelling the lives of Old Testament women for a contemporary audience. And 15 or more books later, she's still going strong with an appreciative following. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and to mark this coming Easter weekend we're doing something just a little different. We talk to Jill about searching the biblical and other secular records to make the women who originally were little more than shadows in the original accounts come alive. We'll have links to Jill's books and media in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. Join us there. Leave us a comment or a suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Jill. Hello there, Jill, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's really nice to meet you. Now, we're doing this as a special Easter podcast episode because you've made your career out of telling Bible stories for a contemporary audience, haven't you? And particularly the women of the Bible. How did you get started on that? I actually started writing about the men of the Bible. Because, oh, did you? Yeah. It began with a Bible study on King David, and I wanted to read a book about his life when the study ended. And I did. I wrote two volumes, but I didn't know how to write back then. And after years of rejection and Finding out that male characters for a lead in a book don't sell was asked by one editor to consider rewriting it from the point of view of McCall. And I turned her down, but I didn't know anything about writing at that time. 20 years later, I had finally written about McCall and Abigail and the wives of King David sold to Ravel. And I've been writing about Old Testament women ever since, except for a few men. Uh, I do have The Heart of a King, which is about Solomon. And I have a new one coming out in a year that'll be about Joseph and Judah. But most of them are all about the women. So, And for those who perhaps aren't so familiar with the Bible stories, tell us a little of McCall's story, because it is rather a touching one, isn't it? Yeah, McCall, she had a rough life. To to write her story, you have to understand King Saul and David and her brother Jonathan. And so I had to, to study the whole era around them and what was going on in her life from being a princess, you know, with a father for a king to married to a, a son, her David was not, you know, any royalty at the time and became a fugitive. And so she wasn't back in his life. There was a separation for a really long time. She lost every family member. She had a rough life. So mm. studying her was pretty fascinating. Also, King Saul married her off to someone else during the years when David was his enemy. And then she was sort of forced to return to David when he came back. So it was very, very difficult, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. Do you enjoy focusing on the women? I mean, actually, when I was reading Miriam's story, which is the most recent one that's out, I felt that a lot of the women in the Bible had quite a hard road to hoe. And a lot of their stories aren't particularly well 
understood perhaps because they are often framed within a male point of view. Mm-hmm. Have you found that tricky or interesting or, or challenging to, to sort of imagine your way into the story from the woman's point of view? Sometimes you have to understand the men before you can even grasp what the woman is going through because there's very little written about a lot of these women. Some of them have a big part, you know, in scripture like Esther and Ruth, and you can get a lot more about them, but there wasn't much about Miriam at all. Her story, you knew she watched Moses in the when he was in the little ark in the Nile River and take you know, found by the princess. And and then you really don't hear much about her except that she sang a song after they got out of Egypt and that she died, complained against her brother and she was a prophetess and she died. And the Bible doesn't really say much else. So I really had to study Moses and Aaron and all about ancient Egypt, what they might've gone through to kind of, and I had to create a character for her that isn't really necessarily true. I mean, it's not false. It's just unknown. Most women would have married in that day, but there's no mention of a husband or children for her. So we don't know if she really did. I created a husband and children for her, but that part is my imagination. So based on her culture, but still, you know, we don't know enough. We don't have a lot to go on with her. Yes, um, in the Bible, it does come through, even in the little that we do know, there comes through a bit of a feeling of her frustration at perhaps not being able to take a more upfront role of leadership, doesn't it? Even in the Bible version, and, and you've brought that out quite a lot more strongly. Yeah, she, I mean, I think part of her complaining against Moses for taking a foreign wife, because of what she says, it has to do with doesn't God speak to hasn't he spoken to us too? seemed more like a complaint of leadership than it did with what her brother had chosen. So, I mean, that's why I kind of made her character to be, yeah, longing for a little bit more what Moses had. I think she might've wanted that closer relationship with God. And as a prophetess, she would have had it some, but not to where God talked to her face-to-face or called her up on the mountain or any of the privileges that Moses had. So, Yeah, I must say that reading the book, you got a very good sense of how just how difficult it was all those days and days they spent in the desert with Moses up the mountain. It, it made you think we wouldn't manage very well in our instant gratification society with that kind of delay, would we? No, <laughs> no. it's some fascinating to me that three days after they had escaped Egypt, they started complaining because (laughs) they couldn't find water. And I'm like, God just took you through the Red Sea and destroyed your enemies and did all these miracles. And you're complaining that three days later, you don't have water. Don't you think you can provide that? But (laughs) I guess we're all as humans, you know, we, we fall, could fall into that thinking. It, very quickly if you're very thirsty, I imagine. (laughs) Yes, that's right. So what have you found that the biggest challenges have been in presenting accurate accounts that also are entertaining for a contemporary audience? Well, first I have to get to know the characters. You know, I really, like I said, I, I studied the scripture part first and as much as is told about the woman or the men around her, 
And as you, as you delve into that and try to imagine what might have been, you know, I don't change what happened, but I try to look for what, why, like motivation or how it might have come about. And that helps me. Sometimes I pull from people and experiences that are contemporary that I have felt or dealt with myself to kind of put into, oh, they might have felt that way here. You know, sometimes you get an epiphany like that where, oh, I'm going through this trial and maybe this is how so-and-so felt during their trial, you know, and I, it's not the same trial, but the feeling could be the same. Yes, yes. And from the point of view of the actual research, I don't assume that you read Hebrew. So how, how do you do it in terms of the really ancient stuff? You've been a few times to Israel, I think, haven't you? Just once. Once, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had actually studied a lot about Israel before we went there, and I sold the wives of King David right before our first trip. But I do the, you know, I homeschooled for 12 years, so I was already in in my library, had a lot of commentaries. When I studied David's life, I found everything I could find. So when I study a new character, I look for Life and Times books, cultural atlases, commentaries. I want to understand the geography. If I'm doing a historical that might have fit in a, like in Egypt, we know a lot of ancient Egyptian history, but we don't know when Joseph lived there, when Moses lived there. We can't pinpoint an exact time. So I had to come up with what I thought might be a good fit. It could be totally wrong, you know, because there's still debate today when the exodus actually happened. I went with what I felt fit best, you know, but yes. again, my my decision, my imagination, go back to the scripture and and stick with that. That's what's true. What what I have in incorporating historically is just my opinion. Yeah. So you've done quite a lot of series. I'd just like to mention the names of those because you've written many books. One of them was Daughters of the Promised Land. Tell us a bit about that. Well, the first one in that was, that is loosely connected because Rahab wasn't really part of the promised land. She kind of precedes it a little bit, but she's the first one in the conquering of Jericho when they got into the promised land. And then you go to how the connection with her son is related to Ruth's son. And Deborah really is part of the judges. And then also Hannah was the very last, her son was the very last judge before the King's era. So they all kind of fit in loosely in the Daughters of the Promised Land. And then there's Wives of the Patriarchs. That would be about Abraham, uh, Sarah, Sarai, uh, Rebecca, and Rachel. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. Uh-huh. And so that precedes it actually. Um, right. In historically, doesn't it? And then the loves of King Solomon. Now there were a lot of them. You couldn't possibly do all of them. <laughs> no. no, that was actually an ebook series. And I had, oh. it was fun when I got to the end of Rachel and I wanted to keep going. I wanted to write about Joseph, but she's dead. So I can't keep going. And so I had this idea. Well, what if we added a book onto the wives of the patriarchs and then maybe I could add a book onto the end of the wives of King David, make them, you know, about Solomon, because I knew a lot about him. 
And my publisher didn't really like that idea at that time, but they liked the idea of Solomon, you know, the loves, if they were short. So these are novellas. They're not full length. They're not in paperback. They're only on e-readers. And I did, I picked four women that were mentioned, his wife, Naama, the, the last wife of David, Abishag, who would have been inherited, Solomon would have inherited her. And actually his brother wanted her to marry her, which was in essence saying, I want to take the throne from you. So he, he probably had her in his harem. And then there would have been, let's see, the Egyptian princess he married. We know that for sure. And I added the queen of Sheba because she visited him. And there's, there's debate on how close they might have been, depending on which traditional tale from either Ethiopia or Arabia you believe. I kind of combined the two. So yeah, there's only the four out of a thousand women. I did that. And then the heart of the king is kind of combines their stories, but takes away a little bit. The The loves are all in first person from just that woman's point of view. And then the heart of a king is Solomon's story. His point of view is added and theirs is turned to third person. So it all meshes together in a way. It's the compilation, but it's different. So yes. you can read them all and, and still read that one and find things you didn't catch in the, in the others. So... The book preceding Miriam's story was about Esther called the Star of Persia, Star of Persia. And it deals with that queen who is credited with saving the Jews during the reign of King Xerxes in the Persian Empire days. As you've mentioned, it is a well-known story, but you've been credited with bringing new insights into it. And I wondered how, how do you manage to do that when these stories are already quite well-known? That book was one I never thought I'd write, honestly. People had asked me to write about Esther, and I thought, no, it's been done too many times before, you know, and I just put it on the back burner. But when we were getting to where I had done so many women in the Old Testament, you know, they, my publisher liked the idea of Esther and Miriam, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. It started to sound interesting, and I decided to go into the historical record and of Herodotus and Xerxes, because he was a, a historical person. You know, you can read about him outside of scripture, whereas Esther and Vashti do not appear outside of scripture. And his wife outside of scripture is a mistress. And you're like, there's commentaries that say, well, Esther was a mistress or Vashti was a mistress. And I'm like, uh uh-uh, she was such a cruel person. There's no way either one of them, in my opinion, was a mistress. So I added her to the story as a third wife because Xerxes had a lot of women, you know, and I put in a little of her life because she was the mother of his heirs who are in the Bible. Like Artaxerxes is a scriptural person and a historical person. And he succeeded Xerxes on the throne amidst, you know, uh, murdering his brother or someone else murdered his brother. It was kind of, you know, crazy times back then. But I just mixed history with the scripture and that's what made it different. Who has been the most challenging character to write about? Ah, yeah, I had to think about that very shortly because there were two and they, they jumped out. One was Rebecca and I never thought 
she'd be difficult to write about until I got started. And then I went, there's no story here. All we know about is, you know, she waters the camels and she goes to marry Isaac The and she deceives Isaac and the end, you know, we had nothing else really on her. But then if you think about it, Abraham has this huge story. Jacob has this huge story and Isaac is this little comma in between, you know, very little about him either. So I prayed over every scene in that book. And I was like, there's no story here. There's no story here. And I kept praying and writing and praying and writing. And at the end, I went, oh, there's a story here. (laughs) Um, So that one was the first difficult one. And the second would have been Deborah. Because again, all we have is a little bit and then a song that she and Barak sing. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, (laughs) that one took a couple of critique partners to help me talk it through. I had one who said, we'll give her a nemesis, you know, and so I gave her a daughter. And not that all daughters are nemesises, but, you know, you can have conflict with family. So that created her conflict. And then I had to talk it through, but right before I turned it in with a different person who read it for me and, and I figured out what was missing and then it, it worked out, but that those were hard, harder books to write, but every book has its hard points. Miriam wasn't easy. I never like a first draft because I, I always feel like I, I just don't know where it's going, you know, until it's done. So Yes. With Rebecca, now she was the one, wasn't she, who deliberately deceived her husband about the boys, that she favoured the younger one and she did, that's, that was a pretty gutsy, if not perhaps even a little bit, it was deceitful, but it was a very strong-minded thing to do. She was very determined to see her own wishes fulfilled there. So you get the feeling that she must have had pretty much a will of iron somewhere there in in her personality or character. I think so. Well, I think it took guts to leave her home and travel with strangers to marry her cousin or whoever he was by relation, you know, that she had never met. But also God had spoken to her that the younger would or the older would serve the younger. She believed that. She knew that from the time they were born and where I'm like, well, why didn't Isaac believe it? And I only can think of, well, because he didn't hear God say it, only she did. And she was determined to make it happen rather than trust God that he would make it happen. I mean, God did say this would happen. And if he said it, he could have done it a d- totally different way. But she, she, like all of us, we tend to take life into our own hands instead of waiting for his timing. And she just didn't wait. You know, she feared it would all go to Esau. So, yeah. Totally. We've talked a lot about Old Testament women, but have you done any New Testament women? No, not not as of yet. That's a whole different ball game because I would have to study a completely different era. I mean, I know a lot about ancient Rome, but I don't know a ton about ancient Rome. And there's a lot of history there that you know, I would have to really spend time getting to know. Yes. I know some of my favorite author friends, Tessa Afshar, she's writes really good uh, New Testament characters. And I just, I haven't had a strong desire to go there. There's nothing on the women there either, except for Mary and Mary's intriguing, but she's hard to, there's controversy on writing her story too, you know, whether yes. it's something to work out, but most women there's not a lot there. You'd have to yeah. make everything up. And I think that'd be harder because you don't even know what their men were like. 
Yes. They're just yeah. the same, you know. Oh, they followed Jesus, you know. I mean, except for maybe the Samaritan woman, you know, there's very little on anybody. So mm, that's right. What's the biggest surprise that you've had in, in doing all of this research? I that's a tough question because I would say I've had little epiphanies, little insights, but nothing like a huge surprise. Maybe because I've you know, spent t- so much time in the Bible m- all of my life and, yes. and I have a really good memory. And so it's like, I remember details. If I've read that story in scripture, I might go back and reread it and go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. But it's like the, uh, they're not big surprises to me. They're just, yes. you know, insights and, oh, aha, you know, moments. Yeah. Aha moments. Yes. Yes. Look, turning from the specific books to your wider career, could you tell us a bit about your life before you became a full-time writer? And has that helped contribute to your work today? Um, before I ever was a writer, my, my sole desire in life was to be a wife and a mom. And God granted that to me and gave uh, me a wonderful husband and three sons who are now all adults and living their own life and, you know, with their own careers. And so we're empty nesters. And at the point, our youngest son, I homeschooled for 12 years. And at that point he graduated high school and went off to college. That's when, or about that same time when I finally sold my first book. And so it gave me a career, something I'd worked at those 20 years of, you know, preceding even before homeschooling, but I, I guess all of that, you know, homeschooling, being around men is partly why I liked writing about the male point of view. And that's a hard sell. I had to switch gears to go to the female point of view, but now I really like that point of view. And it all contributes. Our whole life contributes to every writer's experience. Every Even today, as I go through whatever trial I might go through, we all go through them. It, I pour that those feelings into my stories. So Yes. You've written two nonfiction books as well. One of them called When Life Doesn't Match Your Dreams and the other, She Walked Before Us. I think they're smaller chapters about people's life experience aren't they tell us about that a little bit well that started as an idea at lunch with my agent in California when I was visiting several years ago in fact it was the year my first granddaughter was born and I was only going to do propose well we proposed one book of 24 women and I was thinking you know do a fictional scene and then have like a devotional thing. But my publisher said, no, let's separate that into 12 women, two books, and let's dig deeper and not just do, you know, a devotional scene. So, because I'm thinking blog post style, you know, that's yes, yeah. writing. And I hadn't yeah. written nonfiction before. So it ended up, because I write fiction, I wanted to put the reader in the imagination, in that like, okay, take me to the place where Eve, you know, made that horrible decision to listen to the enemy and take the fruit, you know. And so I fictionalized two scenes in every chapter. And then in between, I tried to give an application or what we can learn from this. And then at the end, I have it where you can ask questions of yourself or in a group study to 
understand it more. The first book is a little bit more memoirish and I wrote it in a place when I was kind of in a darker place, I guess, in life, you know, feeling a little more negative emotions. And the second one, I wasn't in that place, but it was harder to write in a way because I've not experienced, I thought when the wives of David came up, cause they were in the second book. Oh, no problem. I wrote novels on all, most of these women, right? But I've not experienced a son killing a son or a son raping a daughter or, you know, any of the things that Ahinoam and Mayaka and Abigail abuse, you know, I've not experienced that the way they did. So it was like, okay, I've, I need other ex examples to help women who have. So that was a little bit harder. You know, they, they seem easier and then they end up being more difficult to do, but hopefully they've been, you know, bless people in some way to understand yes. women better and also themselves. Look, a perennial question that I like to ask everyone I speak to, and that is, is there one thing that you feel you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? I mean, how many books have you got out there now? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> it's around 15 or so. I, yeah. I'd have to count them. I, I thought about that. And I mean, there's no like secret I, that I have that I could say, oh, I did this and that made me successful. You know, I don't really consider myself successful anyway. But what got me even into publishing, I would have to say, was is surrender. I had worked for 20 years and had stacks of rejections, you know, and I was at a point where my agent, I'd had three agents. My agent had said, we have to shelve the biblical fiction. It's been around the, the Christian block too many times. Nobody's interested. She was going to try and sell some suspense I'd written, which are still on my computer. I have other, I wrote eight other books before the biblical fiction. Wow. I, I just finally one day wrote in my journal, Lord, you know, I can't keep doing this. It's too hard. I'll give my agent a year. I did not tell her that. I gave, I, in my mind, gave her a year to sell something. And if she couldn't, if I'd misread God, I was willing to give it up and just asked him to show me what else to do because I didn't know anything else to do except teach piano, which I don't really enjoy. You know, so it was like, but I was, if I was on the wrong track, I didn't want to keep pushing something I wasn't supposed to be pushing. So I gave it to him. I only prayed about it one other time that I felt this urge to pray about it. And I just let it go. And then about three months later, we had a contract. And that was, and then in about two months after that, I found that journal entry. I'd totally forgotten I'd written it. And I was like, wow, God answered it within six months. And I hadn't even cared anymore. I mean, I cared, but I didn't, I had totally given it to him. And I had thought I'd given it to him many times before, but this was a final, like, I can't take this. I really can't take this anymore. Yes. And so I gave up. Yeah. And it's kind of like a song I hear, heard by Laura's story. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she sings a song called when I give up, I gain. And I was like, that was really true in this instance. When I gave up, I gained, but it wasn't like that's a magic secret or something that, you know, if you give yeah. it to the Lord, he's going to give it back to you. He might not. Yeah. And you got to hold life in an open hand because we don't know. Yeah. 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 
Look, turning to Jill as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and we do like to ask you what you like to read and share with other people that they might enjoy it as well. So where do your reading tastes lead you? Well, for a novelist, I do an awful lot of nonfiction reading. Um, <laughs> I think it's just because my life is at a point where I I gravitate toward books that are going to teach me more about scripture, about prayer, about God. So I lead, I lean toward reading a lot of nonfiction, but I also know I need the escape that also teaches me of fiction because fiction can teach you lessons that you won't catch in a nonfiction story. So I, I really read, I, I pick up one book and start another, I end one book and start another. And I, I've got four going at a time. I read about a chapter in each one at bedtime, counting my Bible. But for non or for fiction, I don't binge read anybody really, but I have favorite authors because I'll read all of my, the only one I really read, I think almost all of her books is my critique partner who's been a friend for more years than I can count. And she doesn't write a lot of them anymore, but she writes fairy tales now. She used to write romance. J.M. Stengel. She, her fairy tales are on Amazon or whatever. She, she indie publishes them. And I love her fairy tales. I like, I'm reading Laura France right now. And that she's new to me. I hadn't read her before, though she's a Ravel or Baker author. And she, I'm reading Tidewater Bride. That's very interesting. She's got a different style that's new to me. I love the Jane Austen style of Julie Clausen. And I like Hannah Alexander and Deborah Rainey and Tammy Alexander. And, you know, there's so many friends that write books. I can't keep up with all of them. So (laughs) I don't, I mean, I, I pick and choose. I've got so many to be reads. I had to finally give away some because I knew I'd never get to them. So I, yes. if I just read one author's all their books, I would never read anybody else's. So I don't, I don't binge read in that regard, but I binge read because I never stop reading. Sure, sure. There was the author that you also mentioned who writes New Testament woman stories. Oh, who was that? Tessa Afshar. She's re- I really like her work. I haven't read a ton of my fellow biblical authors' work partly because I can't read a book if I'm going to write that same story. But since Tessa's in the New Testament, she's she's fair game, you know, because I'm not in the New Testament. So I yes. enjoy, you know, the, the trek into reading biblical fiction from her. If I'm going to write about Esther and someone else has written about Esther, I can't read it. Yes, I can understand that, yeah. Look, we are starting to run out of time. So looking back down the tunnel of time, if, if you were doing – all of this all over again. Is there anything that you'd change? As a writer, I would... As a writer, yeah. I would probably say, don't do it the way I did because I I did it backwards. I learned the hard way to write. And had I studied the craft first, I would have probably avoided 20 years of rejection and so much trial and error and reading books on how to and trying to you know, just practice, practice, practice. If I'd read more of those how-to books or taken classes on writing, though I would, I would warn against taking too many classes. Like you take a college course or, or get a degree in writing or in English, that can work against you because some English makes you too grammar-oriented and not fiction 
doesn't follow grammar the same. You have mm. to be willing to break a lot of rules, but you have to know the rules first. Yes. So, yeah, that's what Yes, I, I think some college courses, they, they tend to try and direct people into more literary fiction too, which may not be what they're really wanting to do. Mm. Yeah, and I don't really read much literary fiction. I have read some of the classics, but I just, I find that for contemporary reading, you got to grab me from the start and and not let go. Because if I yeah. keep putting it down, I may not finish it. I yeah. used to always finish a book and now I'm like, life's too short. If I don't like it <laughs> after the first few many pages, then I'm not going to finish it. You and many, many other readers. So that's what <laughs> we have to cater for, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Look, what's next for Jill as writer? What have you got on your desk for the next 12 months or so? Well, in uh, a couple weeks, I have to turn in Joseph's story, which is really about Joseph and Judah. And I can't give away the title yet because they've told me, but it's not public. But that will get turned in on March 15th or earlier if I can get it done. I've been away from my desk for three weeks visiting my baby granddaughter. So I I haven't been able to get as much done. So I asked for a two-week extension. And then I'll start research on Eve. I'm going to do Eve's story and then Noah's wife. And one each year. So I only have one book this year. <laughs> Once I turn in Joseph, I'll do Eve. And I don't have to worry about two or three books, which I was doing, which yeah. is too much. I can't do that anymore. Mm. Uh, life is too busy. But yeah. And after that, I, I don't have a contract. I don't know what else I want to do after that. I got to think about it, you know. Sure. Uh, and see what my publisher wants, if anything, more from me. So yes, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Look, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online? My website is the best place, uh, jillaileensmith.com. And sign up for my newsletter. I really am trying to push that because I'm hoping to get more into writing more often, mainly because social media, while I hang out on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest now and then, though I'm really bad at that right now. They are changing so much that you might follow me and never see my posts because of the way they keep changing their algorithms. So if you really want to keep up with what I'm doing, newsletter and website are the best places to find me. Yes. You can write to yeah. me through my website and I will respond. I might not respond the same day, but I will respond as soon as I can. That's lovely. And we'll put all those links in the, we publish show notes for every podcast so that a, a transcript of our chat will will appear online and will be there forevermore, like evergreen material. So great, thank you. It's quite nice. Yeah. Look, thank you so much, Jill. This has been wonderful. It's been great to be able to talk to you today, and I'm sure it's, it gives a little extra edge to publishing just before Easter, the Easter weekend. So. Lovely to have had a chance to catch up. Well, thank you. It's been great to meet you. And it's weird that we're talking and you're a day ahead of me. So (laughs) (laughs) I find that fascinating, but it's been fun. Thank you for having me. That's fun. That's lovely. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. 
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.